wanted us to go look at the Ten Commandments for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it's been about, it's been August of 2016 since we've last been in the Old Testament as a church. That's when we wrapped up our study of the book of 1 Samuel. And since that time, we've pretty much been in the New Testament. We've done a couple of summer series, like last year we did a series in the gospel for 10 weeks. Uh, but for the most part, we've been in the New Testament. So I thought it was time to go back into the Old Testament. But secondly, and probably equally important, or the reason it's important is because the, the Old Testament is really the same kind of thing that the New Testament is. And I think a lot of Christians don't realize how much similarity that they share, how much continuity there is between the two Testaments. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard people say that the Bible is basically one message, right? But, but you may not know how that works. I mean, there's a lot of things in here that seems very strange. How is it one particular message? And so I thought, I want us to go back into the Old Testament, and particularly Jesus and the Ten Commandments, to show how Jesus not only fulfills them, but transforms them for our lives. And then that made me realize that really what I'm trying to do is something that if you're going to a church that's preaching expositorily and they're doing a good job of it, you're being exposed to this kind of by osmosis, and that is something called biblical theology. I'll unpack that in a little bit. Um, and, and I thought, well, I, wanna just, I don't want to just expose this to you little by little because other than seminary or maybe Bible college or you go some kind of lecture, you don't realize that there's, an, there's a kind of engine that connects both test, Old Testament and New Testament. And so I thought, well, instead of just doing a series and doing an introduction on this series, what I want to do is actually step back and do an introduction to the field of biblical theology. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, isn't, isn't all theology biblical? Help me out here, right? Or you might be thinking, wait, if today is an introduction to biblical theology, then what have we been doing for the last three and a half years since you became pastor? Unbiblical theology, right? So biblical theology, I'm using that in a technical sense. Biblical theology is the discipline of tracking the unifying theme from Genesis to Revelation that ties all of the, the, the diversity and complexity of the Bible into one stream and flow. Biblical theology is important to anyone, whether you're a Christian or not, biblical theology is critical if you truly want to understand the message of the Bible. Without it, the Bible falls apart into just a bunch of stories and ideas and concepts. But it's biblical theology that weaves it all together, and it's what makes the Bible understandable as a unified message. Because when you think about it, there are challenges to understanding the Bible, aren't there? I mean, just look at this thing. It's huge, right? This is a Bible that my wife and I got as a wedding gift. Kind of, I don't know what, if it says more about us or the person who gave it to us, but I mean, this is a massive Bible. I mean, you open it up and there are charts and graphs and diagrams and, and wars and kings and sacrifices and these prophecies and this Ezekiel guy strips down naked. There's all kinds of stuff in here. And by the way, um, I'm going to be joining our Utah trip. I'm, going, I'm meeting them tomorrow. And, and this is not the kind of Bible you use to go street witnessing with, okay? Because this just gives it away what you're doing. Excuse me, can, can I talk to you for a second? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, right? This is the Bible everyone's afraid they're going to get thumped with. So, but I mean, look at this Bible or any Bible. When you look at it just for a moment, it is clear 
that what you're looking at is not just one book, but there's a whole section called the Old Testament. And then there's a section called the New Testament. So it's not just one book, it's divided into this Old Covenant, and then there's this New Covenant. But even if you look at those covenants, it's not just an Old Covenant. There's this Old Testament law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then after that, you have all these prophets in the Old Testament. And then you've got the wisdom and poetry of the Old Testament. And then you've got the historical books of the Old Testament. And that's just half that front half. If you look at the second half, you've got this whole section called the Gospels. And then there's all these letters that keep getting written to everyone. And then it ends with this apocalyptic vision of the end of the world. It's John's revelation, uh, John, the St. John's revelation. So this is not just one book. You look at this and you go, well, how do I make heads or tails of this? And then to top it all off, it's written in languages you can't even read. So as a result, you need to now find translations to help you read this thing. And up until the 1980s, that wasn't too bad because we generally had about four translations to choose from. But now we've got gender-inclusive translations, we've got slang translations, and then even my favorite translation, the Hawaiian Pigeon translation, the Jesus book. Yes! But can you see why you can easily lose the forest for the trees? Can you see why looking at the Bible and saying there's one unified message seems a lot easier than in the reality of reading it? And because of that diversity and because of that complexity, people do make errors when trying to understand the message of the Bible. And these, probably some of us in this room hold to these errors because we don't think about biblical theology. We don't, I mean, how many sermons have you heard in your lifetime about biblical theology? Probably none. And so you have intellectual errors, so we approach the Bible intellectually, purely, and it's, it's like a, a riddle to solve about doctrinal systems we've got to put together and figure this thing out. And, and in response to intellectual errors, people go, well, it seems too cerebral, it doesn't seem very practical, so they go on the other side of that, and they make all these kind of practical errors. And so they don't want to deal with the theological systems and all these hard languages and then all that. They want to just, how do we, how does I use it in my life? How, how's it practical to me? So how does it make my marriage better? How do I raise my kids better? And so they go all the way to the other side of the error, and it's just like a, a practical how-to book. And then there are people that realize, okay, maybe it's not just uh, intellectual, and, and it's reduced too much on the practical. Maybe you split the difference in somewhere in between, and people will see a part of the Bible that makes sense to them, and then they make the error of interpreting the whole of the Bible based on that. And so someone comes across like the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're seeing the power of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and then everything is about spiritual gifts. Or they latch on to prophecy. And, and they get really excited about prophecy because it makes sense of the world that we live in. So they read the Bible in one hand, they learn a news app in the other, and, and the Bible is basically a, an ancient Jewish fortune cookie at that point. Everything's prophetic. <gasps> President Trump went to see Kim Jong-un. What does that say in Ezekiel? I'm not sure if Ezekiel had anything to say about King Jong-un. Kim, Kim, what's his name? Kim Jong-un. But you get my point. Or it's social justice because they rightly see that the Bible's concerned for the oppressed, the marginalized, the widow, that they then interpret the whole of the Bible and everything about the Bible is about social justice. Here's the problem with that particular error. 
each one of those is latching onto something correct, aren't they? The Bible talks about the power of the Spirit. The Bible clearly talks about prophecy and the end of all things. The Bible talks about social justice, but the problem is they interpret the whole based on the part. And so because of all this wonderful diversity and, and differences in the Bible, we have all these errors. And so people, they either moralize the Bible, right? They just or theorize about the Bible or they psychologize about the Bible. You see, biblical theology aims to see all of this diversity, but what is the unifying thread that combines and pulls it all together so the unified message of the Bible is held intact amongst the diversity? Now, that doesn't mean that all these genres and all these distinctions are meaningless. Not at all. It actually shows that God gets what it's like to live in this very complex, very diverse, and very situational world. So we're not trying to flatten it out and make it all one-dimensional and shallow, but biblical theology is trying to correct the over-fragmentation and kind of parsing out of the Bible and wants to say, if this is in fact a coherent communication from God Himself, there's got to be a coherency and a unity to it. God has a message to give to us, and how do we keep track of that amidst all the stories and struggle of the people of Scripture? So that's what biblical theology is. I hope you can tell by just hearing that, that it's not boring and not just something for the intellectual theologian scholar types. It's something important for all of us. So the question then is, how do we do biblical theology? Well, what's it look like? And that's using the word, there's a word called typology, right? Uh, that just means you, a type. And we've used this kind of terminology all the time, especially when you were dating. You would say, oh, she's not my type, or he's not my type. A type is an ideal. I think there's a definition up there. A person, event, or institution that symbolizes or exemplifies the ideal or defining characteristics of something. And we see this all through the Bible. And so there's something that is a type of something that later is what's called the anti-type. We see it all through. The key to remember here when you're studying your Bible is that they're symbolic and they're significant to the writer of the Bible book you're studying. There's a historical rootedness to it. And that can be person, event, or institution. Let me give you brief examples of that. So number one, uh, uh, Paul does this really easily for us. He talks about Adam in Romans 5. Adam was a representative of humanity, wasn't he? So Paul says Adam was a type of Christ who, by the way, also represents humanity. So Adam was the type that was pointing forward to what, what the Bible calls the anti-type who was Christ. So anti, we usually think of that in a negative sense. Anti, in this case, from the Greek, just means kind of like a contrast here. Or, for example, the exodus from Egypt, which is the context of where the Ten Commandments came from. It was a type of God's powerful deliverance of His people from bondage, which was a type pointing to exactly what Jesus did in delivering the people of God from the bondage of slavery. Right? Or the sacrificial system, the entire book of Leviticus, was a type pointing to, pointing forward to Christ himself, which was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The entire book of Hebrews talks about Leviticus and that this whole sacrificial system was a type of what Christ would do when he would come. 
So a typology, these things, these, these, these symbols and significance that are rooted in history at this macro pattern level are the things that are all through the Scriptures, and we'll look at them in a little bit, that are all through and weave this, that all the diversity together and holds it intact. The problem is most of us are exposed to not typology, which is responsible kind of studying based on the, the text of Scripture in the history. We've been exposed to allegory. And, and so we think it's kind of a willy-nilly way of interpreting the Bible, and allegory is the exact opposite of typology. If typology is the symbol and significance that's rooted in history of the original author at these macro levels, allegory is symbolism and significance to you, the individual, at the kind of minute little minor details, and we come up with crazy stuff. Let me read to you one of the most craziest allegorical messages based on a parable. I want to get one that most people are familiar with, the Good Samaritan. You've all heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. I've heard this parable preached as, or being taught as, it's the fall of humanity, and Jerusalem, as the man was heading to Jerusalem, stands for the heavenly city. The man who was wounded for Adam, who fell into sin, just as this man fell into the hands of the robbers. The priests and the Levite in the parable who passed by stood for the law and prophets who were unable to save. Um, the Samaritan stood for Christ who did come and offer salvation. The inn stood for the church where healing can take place. And the oil and wine stands for the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And even the innkeeper was symbolic of the Apostle Paul. So you look at that and you go, where in the world, how did you get that? because it was all symbolic and significant to the man who was preaching at this micro level. But you see, that is not what biblical theology is about. That's actually an abuse of the text. So biblical theology maintains the uniqueness of all the stories and the narrative and the history while searching for the thematic theme that tips us off that God is in fact doing one thing, bringing to pass His redemption of His fallen creation. And the way that that's tipped off to us are certain individuals, certain events, certain institutions that point forward and keep us on track, like a good movie where you see plot reminders put all throughout. Think of it this way, friends. If any of you love reading a good mystery novel, the kind with a really good, amazing twist at the end. Uh, one analogy I can go use, it goes back years ago, is remember the movie Sixth Sense? You guys remember that? Some remember that movie? At the end of the movie, you go, oh my gosh! Okay, spoiler alert, but it has been 18 years since the movie came out. <laughs> Bruce Willis is dead, right? But you don't know that till the end of the movie. But then what happens? You now see the movie entirely different because you now know the surprise at the end, and you can never see the movie the same way again. In the same way, biblical theology says the whole of the Bible is about God's rescue plan of humanity through this man, Jesus Christ. And when you know that, you can never read the Old Testament the same again, because there's all these plot twists that maybe you missed it reading it through, but now that you know the end, you go, oh my gosh, why didn't I pick up on that before? Adam, yes, perfectly like Christ. The sacrificial system, perfectly like Christ. The exodus, oh my gosh, how can you not see that? That people were crying out because of bondage and God delivered them with His sovereign hand. That's what Jesus does. 
You see, biblical theology helps us to see God's working through it all. So then here's the question. So that's what it is. That's how it works. What is the unifying message of the Bible? So let me distill down 66 books, 1,189 chapters in the 35 words. Here they are. The Bible is the revelation of God's character displayed in the drama of humanity's redemption through the work of the Son and Spirit, all to the eternal glory of God and for our infinite good. That's, we can leave that up there, that's what the Bible is. So I don't read the Bible and ask, what do I think it means? What am I going to get out of it? What do I, what, what, what is this got for me as much as, first, how is God revealing His master plan that's just going to blow my mind, how He redeems me? It's a very different way of looking at your Bible. And the second reason this is so important, friends, as I'm kind of t- touching on it, is the way you understand biblical theology or not will determine the way, um, if I can use this, the, the kind of metaphor you will have in your mind as you think about God's Word. In other words, either the, the, the metaphor you have of biblical, the, the biblical theology you have or don't have will either create in your mind a, a, an understanding that God's Word is essential for every aspect of your life or that God's Word is helpful when it's relevant. And the two are very different, aren't they? So if, you're, if you don't have a good grasp of biblical theology, you will tend to look at the Bible more like a dictionary, right? You're going to look at it more like a dictionary or an encyclopedia. Uh, when I was a young convert, somebody would, would give this, I think it is a helpful acronym, but it's very limiting. They would say, Rick, you know, you need the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How many have heard that? How many people heard that? Okay, so it's helpful as far as it goes, but the problem with that view is it it kind of teaches us that the way we understand our Bible and understand life is a chapter and verse style, so that I should be looking for a chapter and verse for every situation in my life. And so if I'm dealing with anger, anxiety, I go to the front, you know, I look up anger, anxiety, I find all the passages that talk about that, and then I try and apply them and live them out in my life, right? That's kind of how that goes. Here's the problem with that metaphor, though. The majority of our lives are not lived in chapter and verse situations, are they? I mean, I mean, outside of the very obviously externally religious aspects of our formal worship, the majority of our lives do not fit in a chapter-verse mentality. So how old should your child be before they can have social media? What university should you go to? If you retire, is it better to stay near the kids or live someplace more affordable? Should we vote to raise taxes or decrease social welfare problems? Does the Bible, are psychoactive meds biblical or not? What does the Bible say about obsessive compulsive disorder? And and thousands more of kinds of things you think about every day that if you view the Bible consciously or not as a, a dictionary or encyclopedia, you will not find a single chapter or verse for any of these things. 
even though the Bible speaks to all of those things. You see, that's the danger of having this idea of a Bible like a dictionary or encyclopedia that we're just trying to look for answers for our lives that way. And, and if you do find chapters or verses that do apply to your life, a lot of times they are sh- pulled out of the flow of biblical theology of God's plan of redemption, the gospel, and so you then try to apply them into your life detached from the gospel and the power of the gospel. And so what happens is you're subtly reinforcing to yourself that this is just really a good and accurate divine self-help book, right? Or worse yet, that it's not authoritative to all of life because there's nothing about OCD in here in the concordance. And so you're starting to think that for most of your life, you have to go to other authorities to make the decisions of your life. But yet, when it comes to the religious ones, the Bible has a lot to say. You see the problems with viewing the Bible as a dictionary or encyclopedia, right? Basic instructions before leaving earth. It's helpful, kind of, but so limited. So if a bad grasp of biblical theology necessarily reduces the Bible to a dictionary or encyclopedia, what metaphor, uh, when you have a good grasp of biblical theology, what metaphor could we use to describe that? And it's this. The Bible is like a good pair of glasses, that through these lens, I can now see everything so much more clearly. Now, the fact of the matter is, without these corrective lenses, I can still see, right? I mean, but the things are blurry, they're distorted, they're, they're a bit fuzzy, and it's just hard to make out the detail. But when I put on these corrective lenses, everything comes into focus. And what was misshapen or distorted is now clear. The things I thought were one thing, now I see as something entirely different. You make different choices now. Instead of going left, you went right. Instead of zigging, you zag, right? You now don't trip over the things you tripped over. You can avoid bumping into the things you once bumped into because now you see things with clarity. Now, it may not give you immediate answers in the short term, like the the Bible as dictionary encyclopedia can at times, but the answers you do have go a whole lot further because you see with precision and clarity. And so, what I want to do is to help us as a church put those glasses on and to begin seeing things more clearly. I want to make one point of what the Bible is, and and it's basically this, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are about the same kind of thing, Jesus Christ and the gospel message of humanity's salvation and how life is lived through that truth. Now, to grow in that skill, because this is a skill, because we don't want to be the allegorist-type people that point out all the little details, to grow in that skill, we're going to go through this, the summer, a summer series on the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at every commandment, uh, one commandment a week, and not necessarily to see how we need to, to live up to that commandment, although that's true, but to really see how Jesus fulfilled that commandment and transformed it and how we truly are obedient to that commandment only in Christ. And then we're going to spend two months studying the prophet Jonah to see. So we're going to kind of stretch our wings, so to speak, and learn this skill of biblical theology as a congregation. Okay, believe it or not, that was my introduction for my message today. (laughs) I had to build all that up. 
Um, so here's my one-point sermon, my 25-minute my introduction for a five-minute sermon or so. The Bible's one message, Jesus and the gospel. So now that I've made the case for biblical theology, I've described what it is, show you how it works a little bit, and talked about what it does for us, that's all fine and dandy, but it means nothing if that's not what the Bible teaches us, right? At the end of the day, God's words are final authority, not theological constructs or systems, however helpful they might be. So we need to see, does the Bible teach us this too? And you're going to find that it is. I'm a, there's going to be a lot of jumping around through Scripture, so I'll put them on the screens behind you, but you can write the Scripture citation down if you're some, one of those that wants to look this up later. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about this in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of Jerusalem or Israel, and He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Okay, so here's a general statement that the Scriptures bear witness about who? About Jesus. Friends, what are the Scriptures that Jesus is referring to at this point? Is He referring to the Gospel of Mark? <laughs> no, because it wasn't written. Is He referring to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? No. When Jesus says, hey, you're searching the Scriptures and they bear witness to me, He's referring to the Old Testament. So here we have Jesus saying, the Scriptures are your searching for life. Those Old Testament things, they bear witness about me. But then Jesus gets even more specific in a later conversation. In John chapter 8, verse 56, He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> what? Abraham, about 2,000 years before Jesus was incarnated, and Jesus is saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and it was, he was glad. So Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, is seeing things about Christ. Now, did he know his name would be Jesus? Did he know all the specifics? No, we're not saying that. But Abraham knew some, enough to know that God was sending a Redeemer that Jesus is saying, he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. John chapter 5, verse 46, listen to what this says. Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. Mic drop, right? There it is. That's the mic drop. What do you mean? Wait, wait. Moses wrote the first five books of the, the Bible, the Pentateuch, Leviticus, Exodus. He wrote, Jesus is saying that Moses wrote about him. Now, you could look at Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses says, God will raise a prophet like me from amongst you, and you need to listen to him. That could be it. Moses knew, I'm not the prophet here. I'm not the, the end all. There's coming one that will bring the covenant that you need. And Jesus is saying, Moses was writing about me. Here's one that's phenomenal, Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and following. So this is Jesus after his resurrection walking on the road to uh, um, Emmaus with these disciples. And, and, and listen to what Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Wow. 
Do you notice that Jesus is implying that these Jewish disciples should have been able to figure this out because they had the Old Testament? Jesus is implying, you're foolish. Do you not know? And he just starts going through Moses and all the prophets. So it's clear, and by the way, I've got 10 more allusions from the Gospels, but you get the point. It is clear that Jesus was convinced that the Old Testament was about him. What about the disciples? Did they think that too? Absolutely. Furthermore, not only did the disciples, not only were they convinced that the Old Testament was about Jesus, they were convinced that the gospel message is in the Old Testament. Look at Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul is saying, I'm set apart for the gospel that's been foretold in the Old Testament, and he starts to unpack bits of that gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what Paul writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And again, what were the Scriptures to Paul? The Old Testament. Because he was currently, he was going to later write the New Testament, or help to, but at this time, it's the Old Testament. So on trial, speaking to Herod Agrippa, Paul says this in Acts 26, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did they say? That Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. One more, Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. This is Peter uh, holding the, the, the Israel, uh, Jewish authorities liable for crucifying Christ. You acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, really? Even Obadiah? Even Habakkuk? Yeah. By all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Yeah. Okay, I lied. I got one more. Acts 10, 43. To him all the prophets bear witness. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him should receive forgiveness of sins through his name. We, we could go to the book of Hebrews. And you could see how time and again, the entire book of Hebrews is a commentary, a commentary on the book of Leviticus, and how every aspect of the sacrificial system was pointing them to Jesus and his work and his sacrifice on their behalf. Friends, the reason, again, I say that this is so important, is that unless we see God's redeeming work his redemptive work through the Son as the unifying tie between Old and New Testaments, the aim really of the Bible, we are liable to make many errors, as I talked about earlier. Now, in an evangelical church like ours, the error we're probably most prone to is the error of moralizing the Bible, right? So, moralizing the Bible is reading the Bible uh, 
not necessary to, to see, to cherish, and savor, and see the Son and His redemptive plan and have confidence in God's salvation, but to find principles to live by through the examples, the good or bad examples of the people in the Old Testament. Friends, God's drama is not a fiction. This is real history. People who lived lives as complicated and as pressure cooker as yours, people with pressures like you face, they're, they're, they're very different on the surface. Right? You're, never, you're not hiding behind a besieged city with an whore, angry horde ready to slaughter you, but you're worrying about how you're going to pay your bills, how you're going to provide for your family, what your coworkers will think. Will you get the promotion if you're faithful? You, we have the same, below the surface, the same dynamics that they did. And if we forget the storyline of the Old Testament, we will also miss their witness of faith. And that cuts the heart out of the Bible. And so all the Old Testament becomes, all the Old Testament stories simply become kind of like Sunday school, tamer Sunday school versions of the Sunday comics or comics. So Samson substitutes for Superman. And, and David's confrontation with Goliath is a, a more ancient Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. You see, we've totally mistaken what the Bible was written about. God, from Genesis to Revelation, is constantly showing the gospel message that you are in a mess much bigger than you could possibly imagine. But I am a Savior much more powerful and loving than you could possibly ever dream, and I will bring my salvation to you. It may not look like what you thought it was. It may be hard for you, but I'm faithful, and I'm trustworthy, and I will do it. It is not about what you are doing. It is about what He is doing. You see, that, when you see that, that leads to worship. You, you realize, you like with Jonah, you say, salvation belongs to the Lord. But when you look at the Bible of, well, how am I supposed to live this? And what is it, how is it applicable to me now? That doesn't fuel worship. That fuels moralism because if you are successful, you look down on others who can't do it. Or it fuels guilt because you never can live up to what you need to be. And that's why this is so critically important to recognize that Christ is the hero through it all. That it's not just about, and again, I don't want you to say, think that the Bible's not about application. It doesn't have anything to say to our, our families and marriages and all that. It, it totally does, but you've got to get first things first. And you've got to realize that God's showing you His salvation, and He'll save you. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your parenting situation, whether it's a situation you have at the office, whether it's your finances. If God can split the Red Sea, He can pay your electric bill. That's what he's trying to say all the time. And since we have such a hard time realizing that, he says it from Genesis to Revelation. Friends, just let's look, take a look briefly, briefly in the last couple minutes, that unlike Adam, Jesus passes his test in the garden and passes on to those in him the blessings, whereas those under Adam pass on the curse because Adam failed his test. When Abraham was called and left his father and his father's land to go to a place he didn't know, Abraham was just forecasting what Jesus would one day do when he left the father to come to a place that was harsh and hostile to him. 
When Isaac carried that cord of wood and laid down his life to be sacrificed by the hand of his father Abraham, he was just indicating to us what Jesus would one day do later. Jesus in the Old Testament is the greater Joseph who serves faithfully at the right hand of the king and he extends forgiveness and provision to the very people who betrayed him. Jesus is the greater Moses who stands as a mediator between God and a rebellious people, but he brings us the new covenant. Like Job, Jesus suffered innocently, tormented by the devil so that God will be glorified while his dumb friends were of no help. Jesus is a king greater than David who has slain the giants of sin, of death, of Satan itself, when all the world thought for sure that he would be crushed by those very things. Jesus is a greater Jonah, who doesn't just spend three days in the belly of a fish, he spends three days in the grave to save a multitude much more greater than Nineveh. And like when Boaz took Ruth and, and brought her and her despised people into a new community to be accepted, Boaz was just displaying to us what Jesus Christ is going to do for his bride, the church, bringing a despised people into the community of God's blessing. We go on and on and on and on. That's what the Bible's about. That's what biblical theology is trying to teach us. And the point of it all, as I said, is that God's saying, I can save you. I can save you. But first, have eyes to see my salvation and how I work in the gospel because that fuels worship. To look at the Bible any other way does not fuel worship. It fuels religiosity. And we want to have our love fueled by worship. So next week, as our case study, we're going to start a series in the Ten Commandments. Because after all, even Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to destroy the law. Oh, no, I came to fulfill the law. And so, because I'll be in Utah with our team, actually, Dr. Jason Oaks, some of you remember him, he will be here to start us with our first commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture. Father, we thank you that because of its diversity, because you are dealing with real human beings living in a real world in real situations, it takes on the flavor of all that reality. But behind it all and through it all, your redemptive message of your strong saving hand on behalf of your people shines through clearly, and we see that most clearly and most perfectly in Jesus himself. Father, help us to be fueled by that, that our worship is fueled, that you are our Savior, that salvation is of the Lord, not of our works, and we'll thank you in his name. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.